We've been in a teaching series out of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, how many of you were here last week? Last week we did something really fun and special. It's just a, man, I hope it was a powerful time. We, we had an all-scripture service and we just read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that, that whole entire teaching. We just let God's Word speak for itself. And, and hopefully you see the priority that we place on His Word and, and, uh, and how awesome and important it is. And this week we're going to talk about that sermon a little bit more, but I only gave myself one week. So uh, uh, we're going to talk about it from a, maybe a little bit different angle. It says at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus is healing every kind of disease and crowds of people are are coming to him, bringing them their their sick. And it says in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus begins to see the crowds coming around him, he goes up onto a mountainside and sits down. That's the introduction to what is the, the greatest teaching uh, maybe of all time. Crowds coming around Jesus, and he goes up onto a mountainside and sits down. And this is, uh, I want you to pay attention to this for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, I, I want you to pay attention to where he goes. He doesn't go to a church building He doesn't go to a synagogue, which would have been like a local church, a community church that usually met in people's homes. Uh, He doesn't go to the city center, the town square. He doesn't go to a a boardroom, and he doesn't go to the temple, God's holy place in Jerusalem. Where does he go? The mountainside. And who is there? Who is on this mountainside? Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot, but we know that, that the sick are coming. But, but just the fact that it's on a mountainside tells us a couple things. The people that are there are, are the people that surround Jesus at this moment are, are probably not royalty. Fair to say? Um, probably not uh, businessmen or women. Uh, because it's there, because it's on a mountainside, kind of out in the sticks, it's, it's not, uh, he's not surrounded by the religious elite or, or the social elite. And maybe it's just my perception, and you can tell me I'm completely wrong about this. But I think he's on a mountainside surrounded by ordinary people. He's surrounded by outside people. The, the kind of people who get up early to take care of animals. And, and maybe they even smell a little bit like the animals they care for. I think he's surrounded by farmers. Ag people. The kind of people that have dirt under their fingernails. Are you with me? So in the South, we have a name for these kind of people. It's a name uh, I wonder if you're familiar with. Uh, it's uh, called uh, Rednecks. Any of you, uh, you know what Redneck is? Any of you ever been called a Redneck? All right, so uh, yeah, I know, we're, we're in dangerous. All right, so uh, I'm gonna try to describe to you what a redneck is. I'm gonna do the best I can. I've got some pictures to show you kind of, this is the redneck engineer, ingenuity. This is a redneck thinking. This, this actually has a point eventually. Go ahead, I'll show you that next picture. So here's how redneck cooks s'mores. 
Some of you are going, okay, I get it. I get it. Finally, this, I got one more picture. I was riding that baby chair. Yeah, and teething ring. That's right. So if you're still not, still not unsure, I know a lot of you are from California and Ohio, so welcome to the South. I want to I explain to you what a redneck is, and Jeff Foxworthy does the, maybe the best job of it. He says you might be a redneck if you've ever duct taped your flip-flops back together. You might be a redneck if directions to your house includes the words, uh, turn off the paved road. You might be a redneck if your family business requires a lookout. You might be a redneck if your mailing address is care of Waffle House. You might be a redneck if uh, your retirement plans include getting your own place. You might be a redneck if you were born with a plastic spoon in your mouth. Uh, you might be a redneck if most of your in-laws are outlaws. You might be a redneck if everyone in your family has been shot at. And you might be a redneck if people ask if you are in the movie Deliverance. All right, so I, I know uh, there's definitely uh, associated with this name redneck, there's definitely a derogatory, kind of definitely insulting side about marrying family members and all that kind of stuff. Like, like and I get that, I, I know that's there. But, but for me, uh, a redneck is an, an outdoor person. Uh, 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 it's, it's, uh, it, it makes me think of, of my grandpa. So my grandpa, every day of you know, my life got up before the sun came up. Does that make sense? Like, and uh, he had a big grove of pecan trees. And whenever we came to visit, and usually we'd go visit for a couple of weeks every year, like uh, when he got up, that meant it was time for us to get up. And I remember like he would pour cold water in my ear until I got up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love my grandpa. Um, but we would go outside and we would work in the morning when it was still cool outside, this was in West Texas, and so it'd, it'd get blazing hot in the day. So before breakfast, you wake up, you go outside, and you pick up pecans, or, or it was time to get on the tractor. He knew how to fix things. He knew how to do things with his hands. Uh, a redneck is someone that, that, that has hands that are, are, are tough and strong. They're, they're incredibly capable hands. And I think Foxworthy's made millions of dollars with these redneck jokes because I think, frankly, there's millions of us out there. A redneck for me is uh, a hardworking person, incredibly, incredibly loyal. Uh, rednecks uh, find a way to make it work. You know what I mean? They may not have all the parts of the newest stuff, but they, they, they find a way. They, they see past adversity or adversity. I think a redneck is an incredibly practical, down-to-earth kind of person. And if you'll permit me, Adam's interpretation of this is when Jesus gets up, goes up on that mountainside and sits down, he, this is the kind of people he's surrounded with. My deeply theological statement for today, and you're going you're gonna to want to write this down, is that Jesus likes rednecks. And I think that's who he is speaking to, to this crowd of, of practical people. Jesus offers a teaching 
that is intensely practical. Look closely and stay with me. At the, at the very center, the penultimate verse, the theme of Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle is one verse that encompasses all of the meaning and all of the intention. Like if you just, if you know this one verse, you know the entirety of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Look what it says. Jesus in the very center says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. That's it. That's it. That is the whole thing. And even if you want to know the theme of Matthew's gospel, it is right there. It begins by seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, more than anything else. Do you know that? More than anything else in the Bible, Jesus talks about the kingdom, and he places it first and foremost. He even prays for it, that that God's kingdom would come. So how do we seek first this kingdom? He says, live righteously. Or you might just even shorten it to say, seek the kingdom of God and live right. Live right in relationship to God, but also live right in relation to others. In a series of, even in this sermon, Jesus is going to say, I know you have heard. I know you've heard. I know you've heard. In a series of, I know you have heard, Jesus is going to set the record straight on right living. On action. So living is all that matters, especially think about his audience again. An incredibly practical people living day to day. He is going to talk to them about action, about living is all that matters. And Jesus is going to talk to them about how to live. So let's take a look at this Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to see the incredible practicality of it. Let's get practical. In the very first verses, uh, and I don't want you to miss this point, Jesus begins with words of blessing. The poor, meek, humble. He speaks words of blessing and then follows that immediately with uh, uh, examples of salt and light. And all of it points to things we do. It points to good deeds. In verse 16 of chapter 5, Jesus says, Do good so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You are salt and light. And he reminds these incredibly practical people of their purpose. You know what your purpose is? Our purpose as a church here in Franklin, Tennessee to bless, to do good. That is to live right, to give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Our purpose fundamentally is to bless, is to do good to others. He goes on to say, if you're angry with somebody, maybe even you've gone so far as to call them an idiot, uh, he says to get over it. That's the, that's the Greek. He says if you've got an issue with someone, let's put it in this setting. 
He says, if you've got an issue with someone, you're in the wrong place. Think about that. If you've got an issue with someone, don't, don't come to church. You need to go settle it. Don't come to me. Don't come to God for forgiveness. Go to them and make it right. Incredibly practical, right? Go and be reconciled to that person, verse 24 says. Verse 25 says, settle your differences quickly. And later, he's going he's gonna to take it even a step further. He says, I know some of you want to take revenge. There have been wrongs that have been done to you, and I, and I know you have this, this fire of revenge to get back at what has been done to you. But he's going to just simply say, that's not for you. And some of you are going to want to slide into this seat of, of judgment. And he's going to say, that's not for you either. And he gives this example about a log and a speck. I don't know if you remember. Instead, his instruction is to choose love. I know you want revenge. I know you want judgment. But instead, I want you to choose love. And he says, I want you to love even when they don't love you back. I want you to love even when there's nothing in it for you. Choose love. Love others the way you would want to be loved. He'll say in this sermon, he says, hey, I don't, I don't want you to give in to lust he says, I, I don't want any part of you to fall into temptation and sin. And, and essentially, he says, hey, I want each and every one of you, I want you to practice self-control. He reminds us that, that things are to be used and people are to be loved. And too often, we get that the other way around, using people and loving things. He says, people are to be loved and be careful how you see others. In impre- incredibly practical teaching, he simply says, I want you to say what you mean and mean what you say. How many of you would like to see that on uh, like maybe the news or from our political figures a little bit more? Like this is real life stuff to a bunch of farmers and common people, he says, your yes should be enough. Man, this is advice. This is awesome advice for today, isn't it? If you say yes, then do it. And if you say no, let that be the end of it. And he says, while you're, you're doing all of these things, Make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Motives are incredibly important in this teaching, this teaching of Jesus, and he, he wants you to check them. And, and he talks about these, these simple things. He says, when you pray and when you fast and when you give to the needy, pay attention, he doesn't say if. He says, when you pray, when you fast, when you give to the needy. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. And he says, don't do it in public. In other words, he says, be humble in the way you live. I love what John Ortberg said about humility. He said, we'd like to be humble, but what if no one notices? 
In Ephesians chapter 6, it says this. It says, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. I, I don't, I, he says, I understand the pull of, of, of money. I understand the pull of fame. I understand the, the, the pull of prestige. I understand the pull of power. I get it. But you can't serve both God and fill in the blank. We serve, and Ephesians remind us, we serve an audience of one. And as Christians, I, I want you to know that, and we got to be okay with that right from the beginning. So when you pray, or when you fast, or when you give to the needy, make sure you are serving God and Him alone. Check your motives and make sure that your heart belongs to God. Is, is pleasing God motivation enough? Is it? He goes on to say, I love this, this blue-collar teaching. He goes on to say, he says, most of us worry a lot and pray a little, but I want you to turn the tables. I want you to pray a lot and worry little. He's going to say about prayer, he says, keep on praying all the time, be praying, never stop praying. Instead, I want you to stop worrying. Just like revenge and judgment, those things aren't for you. Worry is not for you either. That's for someone else. I want you to keep on praying. And I love what he says, like, like consistency in prayer matters. Consistency in prayer matters counts. This, it's, it's almost as if to say this whole practical how to live rightly, this, this whole teaching series, like if you're not praying consistently, then, then you're not going to be able to live rightly. Prayer has got to be this, this driving force for all of it. And when you pray, I want you to know your heavenly father already knows all your needs. And he talks about parents. What kind of parent is going to give their kids something they don't ask for or something they don't need? Don't you know you have a father in heaven who loves you and, and already knows what you need? Even if you go back to that key verse, right? That key verse, verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So keep praying and cut the worry to a minimum. As you get near the end of his teaching, Jesus says in uh, chapter 7, verse 21, man, super sobering words. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually, what do those three words say? Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter in chapter 5, he says, anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I, want, I, want, I, I don't want you to miss this. It, it was so striking to me as I was studying the sermon this week and getting ready for this teaching. Like it really does all boil down to this. 
He doesn't say, you know, are you believing? The question is, are you doing? Jesus teaching his great sermon is to hardworking, get it done kind of people. And it's not a sermon about belief, honestly. It's a sermon about behavior. He knows what the truth of what Bill Hall says. He says, our deepest, humans desire, our, our deepest human desires are revealed by our daily life and habits. The deep things of us are revealed not by what we say we believe, but by what we do. And being a follower of Jesus is 90% behavior and 10% belief. But most of us, especially maybe here in Nashville in the buckle of the Bible belt, most of us claim the opposite. We claim to believe Jesus 90% of the time and actually follow him 10%. And if we do not obey God, then no matter what we claim to believe, we do not really understand the gospel he preached. I want you to see that speaking to a blue-collar, working-class people, he gives them a working teaching. Think about when Jesus calls his disciples. You remember these moments? Jesus doesn't walk up to his disciples on the shoreline or behind the tax collector's booth and say, come and believe in me. What does he say? Come and follow. I think discipleship, following Jesus, this teaching of Jesus is more about behavior than it is about belief. And at the very end, Jesus simply says, are you doing the will of God? Are you doing it? In just a few minutes, we're going to enter into a time of communion, and we've got the station set up around the room, and we'll play music and give you this space. It's part of our tradition, something we think it's really important to do, and we invite each and every one of you to do that. But before we get there, I want to remind you of how Jesus ends this great teaching. It's no coincidence that Jesus concludes his great teaching with a story about two builders. Do you remember? In chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. That person, that'll be like building a house on solid stone. But he warns, he says, but there'll be others who hear these words, maybe even believe them, but don't obey. And it'll be like people who try to build a house on sand. I think Jesus went to, if you'll permit me, I think Jesus went to the rednecks. He went to the people who could 
find a way to make it work, who could get the job done. He went to people who could build his kingdom through behavior. So as I send you to a time of communion, um, sometimes there are words from scripture that are that, that should be meditated on, that should be contemplated, um, that, that should be thought on and kind of mentally chewed on, but that, that is not the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, you know, I really want you to think about these things. It's a teaching to be obeyed. It's a teaching to be done, to be applied. And if you think about the story of the two builders, it is a teaching to build a life on. What kind of life are you building? What is your foundation? Are you following Jesus with your behavior? Now's the time. Now's the time. It's time to do the will of God again, to put God's will into practice, to seek the kingdom first, to live rightly. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for, for your words. God, they aren't, they aren't placed so far away we can't find them. God, your teaching isn't so high up we can't reach it. But God, here it is right in front of us. Father, I ask, I ask uh, just for the conviction of your spirit within each and every one of us. Maybe there's areas that, that we can, we have not, we've been claiming to believe, but we have not been behaving in a way that, that shows we are being obedient to your will. Father God, even as you taught us to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. Father God, let, let us say that prayer with our hands and with our feet and with our words, with, with the action and behavior of our lives. And Father God, if there's been behavior that's been outside of your will this week, then convict us of that. Let us come to your table filled with repentance, seeking forgiveness. Father God, let us challenge each other to seek first the kingdom of God, to pursue righteousness, to pursue your will in, in this place and with others above anything and everything else. Father God, let us serve you and you alone. Father God, I think there is conviction in the great teaching of your son, Jesus. I think it's as relevant today as it ever has been. Father God, let us be doers. Let us be doers of your will. And may your kingdom come soon. We love you, Father. Bless us as we enter into this time of communion, as we take these sacred and holy elements and remember your son, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that everyone together says,